Arjun. You're listening to KZST Santa Cruz, and I'm here with, uh, first of all, Carol. Hello. From, from Test of Time. From the Test of Time, as she's going to help me interview Colin and Rod from The Zombies. Hiya. Hi. Uh, Welcome. Yeah, Hi, we're thank really you very much. Thank yeah, you. we're really happy to have you here at KZSC. Thank you. And uh, get a chance to see you tonight at the Catalyst Club. Very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll hear all about it, but you're in the midst of a, <laughs> many, many shows in uh, California and elsewhere. And uh, today you have uh, Bruce Sedano opening. Uh, yeah. Has that has he been accompanying you, or is this yes, first time he's you're been on the whole tour? Except okay. yesterday when we played this whole Salido uh, Arts Festival. I'm not sure if I right. said that right. But yeah, yeah it sounds about yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he wasn't with yeah. us there, but he's been with us on all the other shows. He's really, yeah. really good. Um, I think uh, my first question is um, the zombies initial run was from 1961 to 67 and I was wondering what prompted the breakup and did you guys consider about uh, consider reforming after time of the season became such a a hit a year later I think that really the the band finished in 1967 because we perceived ourselves as being unsuccessful and the strange thing is that when we look back, we realize that we were professional musicians from 64 to 67. We realized that we always had a hit record somewhere in the world. It's, um, but I think in many ways we judged success by what was happening in the UK and what was happening in America. And things had gone a bit quiet. And we just finished an album called Odyssey and Oracle. And a couple of, one or two singles had been released and they weren't successful. And it seemed, it, to us, it seemed it was time to move on and to start new projects. There was no, no problem, no animosity about it. It just seemed the right thing to do. Looking back, it, might have, it would have been interesting if we'd have waited a little bit longer because um, time of the season, probably a year and a bit after we finished, went on to be a huge hit in America and all around the world. Um, but we never thought of getting back together again. You know, once we'd made the move of wanting to get into fresh projects, we were committed to those projects. So I don't think there was ever one conversation about reforming the band. We were never people that looked back, uh-huh. ever really. We've always looked forward, uh, all our lives, even to the, the present day, and the things that excite us the most now uh, are the fact of being able to create and... Uh, work on and record new material and get that across to people and get a real reaction back from people Uh, along with being very happy to play all the old stuff as well but within that context of always so when when time the season was a hit it just felt great it felt great because at that point chris white and myself who were the writers in in the zombies um had formed a production company and amongst other things we were recording uh, my my new band Argent. We were just starting to work on that, and we were going to produce an album for Colin, which became a very iconic solo album one year, um, particularly in Europe. I, it, it had a, a great deal of success in Europe, actually. I know not so much over here, although people do know it in a in a more of a cult sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it just felt great because it meant that Chris and I, with a number one record, c- c- could go over to CBS and speak to Clive Davis and say, um, you know, we want to uh, get get a deal for our, our new projects and, and everyone was saying, fantastic, That's okay, here you are. <laughs> <laughs> so it made things very easy mm-hmm. and um, it just felt good to me, personally. I, it, I never resented it at all. Yeah. 
Well, I know we want to ask a lot about what you were doing, um, Colin Blundstone and uh, as Argent and other projects, but then eventually, after two decades, it did seem time for you to record something under the name The Zombies again. It took a long time. Uh, we, we actually got back together again in 1999, although we had, what, over the years, there were various projects that we'd worked on together, so it wasn't yeah. as if we hadn't seen each other yeah. over the years. But in 1999, we got together to play six concerts, very definitely six concerts. Just for fun. <laughs> for fun, under our names. We, there was no thought of uh, reforming the zombies. We enjoyed it so much... We just kept playing. And, In a uh, very slow way. Yeah, just added a few gigs. Yeah. So it took a long time to gather momentum. And, and eventually we started recording again together. But it's something that evolved naturally. And um, it wasn't until about seven years after we got back together again, so it would be about 2006, we realised that there'd been so much interest in the zombies material people had asked us to play more and more zombie material and we realized that over the years we're now practically playing a zombie set which we weren't doing in the first place it was never our intention we very consciously weren't at the beginning because we said the last thing in the world we want to do is try and just make a few bucks by raking over the embers we just did not want to do that so we consciously did not do any zombies material but then um, we realised there was quite a lot of the Zombies canon because we'd broken up that we'd never played on stage. And we started to rediscover that ourselves. And suddenly it felt natural and honest because we started to get excited about finding and rediscovering this material. Um, and, it, and it suddenly didn't feel like a calculated cynical move. So... We, we embraced the whole thing more and more. We had a fantastic band behind us which has just got tighter and tighter over the years i think this is the best band we've uh, ever played in i mean i think colin feels the same i certainly sure, feel that as well yeah um and it's just very exciting to have a sort of second incarnation if you like and and happily embrace the zombies name now and not feel silly about doing it because it feels right and um and it, i mean one of the things that we're most proud of i mean during the october tour last year when the new album came out we actually got a phone call from Billboard. Billboard phoned us up while we were on the tour. And, you know, we were sort of saying yes, you know. They said, well, we just wanted you to know that for the first time uh, in 50 years as the Zombies, you've made the top 100 album sales charts. And we thought, wow. I mean, it didn't stay there very long, but nevertheless, it was, it was an unlooked-for success. We, ne we never dreamed that it would get... Uh, it would actually do that, make that that position you know because it got fantastic reviews and uh and it's had a great reception everywhere so we're almost more proud of that than anything else we, when we started playing in the states in some areas we were playing to handfuls of people particularly down south now our audiences down south are really big and we feel that we've uh, you know we, we joke that we're an emerging rock band <laughs> so your latest album still got that hunger um has you guys reworking that 1965 single um, I want you back again. Um, yes. How does this new version portray the band, uh, the zombies of the 21st century? Well, if I could just say that the idea behind doing it again was that we heard a live version by Tom Petty of that zombies tune. After Fillmore. 
no, no he, re- he, recorded, he recorded oh he recorded it yeah. Yeah. yeah so we heard that version and um, we realised we'd never played it on stage it was one of those ones oh, that we'd never played uh-huh. on stage in he fact, does a very nice uh, we were with Tom really Petty version yeah. of that we were with Tom Petty last week and we told him this story because we he he has a radio show too mm-hmm. so we told him this story that we would have never played that song again if we hadn't heard his very fine recording of it mm-hmm. and um we thought, I mean, in so many words, good enough for Tom Petty, good enough for us. <laughs> but, the th- but the thing was, once we started playing it on stage, because we'd never played it before, we stayed very true to the original character mm-hmm. of the song. Mm-hmm. But by playing it every night on stage and really enjoying it, we started to, it started to seat in within the same character, but it started to seat in and become very much more of its own thing with us playing and the fact and i loved the fact i could use my my uh, steinway piano from home which is my pride and joy to actually do you know a great sounding piano uh, for to, to do the solo on uh, and just just take it a, a, another couple of steps stay tr- i believe it stays true to the original character but it just reflects us a little bit more how we're doing it now on stage and so it felt right just to include that one old song in its present condition yes uh, uh, all the other songs are original new songs there's just that one re-record mm-hmm. on the album and we've talked about it so much why don't we take a quick listen yeah Okay, from Still Got That Hunger, the zombies with I Want You Back Again, 2015, the re-recording of that piece. We heard a little bit of your music and a little bit of the... Uh, it makes me wonder about some of the influences and how you grew to be musicians. Um, and I know we wanted to ask about whether jazz uh, was part of your context in the 60s. And um, for me, also, I'm interested in like the British choral tradition too oh, right. was, was that there as well yeah well it was i mean it's very interesting actually I, I grew up in the first 10 years of my life first 11 years of my life only only really liking classical music i didn't like the most of the pop music that was around at the time and then one day uh, my cousin who's four years older than me and plays bass in our present incarnation original bass player with argent as well and and for 18 years um, on the, the Kinks' best-selling albums, uh, he was based around the Kinks. Wow! He was in a great local group, and he played me Elvis singing "Hound Dog," which absolutely spun my whole world around. I'm, I wasn't the only one, obviously, but it made a, it was an epiphany. Really, it was fantastic. And and then from that time onwards, for six months, all I wanted to hear was the rawest rock and roll I could get my hands on. Little Richard, as it was at the time, you know, obviously Elvis. Uh, Elvis's. I still love Elvis's first three years. I've got. Uh, his records from the first three years on my jukebox um but at the same time i i didn't see any reason to stop listening to the classical music that i'd grown to love i was in a great choir cathedral choir and so i was immersed in harmony and that that musical experience actually um opened me to uh, my mother loved classical music which is why i did originally but she liked the, the very um, famous romantic lollipops of Grieg and Tchaikovsky, etc. But being in the choir, um, it introduced me to Stravinsky, to Bach, uh, particularly Bach, yeah. um, 
and um, a, a lot of sort of what was at the time modern classical music, and it was just a fantastic experience. But we were very un and and the other thing was that personally, when you were talking about jazz, within about three years. I heard, I'd heard my first Miles Davis record, which was the band with uh, Coltrane and Cannibal Adderley and Winton Kelly at the time. Later it became Bill Evans um, uh, on piano and um, Philly Joe Jones on drums. Absolutely blew me away. But I didn't see any difference between listening to that and listening and continuing to listen to Elvis and Little Richard and, and things like that. I, it, to me... All of it seemed like water from the same well, and it still does to me. And and when I, you know, I, I still play a lot of stuff from around that time. I have to say, maybe that's common to most people as they get older. But um, everything's on shuffle usually. So I'll have, you know, Elvis's Mystery Train followed by um, a, a, a bit of the Soldier's Tale by Stravinsky. You know, followed followed by. Um, on Green Dolphin Street, you know, by Miles or something like that. It, and it, that sounds great to me, having, having all that going on. So all those things were flying around, and certainly in the stuff that I, I, I tended to write, the, the early hits of, of The Zombies, and um, I never thought of it, us, as being anything else except The Beatles. But what came out, because of the indirect influences, certainly in, in my writing, I think, you know, were, were these things were just there. And years later... We, um, I met Pat Metheny and he said, oh man, he said, She's Not There was the record that made me feel there was a way ahead for me. He said, all that modal stuff. And I thought, there's nothing modal and She's Not There. <laughs> and then I, I went back and I played, the I mean, I don't want to get too technical, but what was just an A minor seventh and a D chord. And I thought, yeah, but I didn't just play that. I played a, a, a chordal progression over those, basically over those two chords, which is modal. And I hadn't thought it, it was just intuitive. And, and so I think all those things did bear an influence. And, and the harmony thing was always very important to us. We had um, both Chris White and myself always set a mic up at the back of the band. And when Colin was singing lead vocal, we would always incorporate harmonies into the band. And we were very, very unusual at that time, in 1961, when we started. That's before we'd even heard the Beatles. Now, the Beatles were doing the same thing, mainly because they were falling in love with um, the Motowns, the early Motown stuff and the blues things, but the, the early Motown stuff that they were hearing coming through the port of Liverpool mm -hmm. because the merchant seamen were bringing these records back when the rest of the country hadn't even heard them. So that was a real uh, inspiration for them. Um, but we, in our own way, were down in St Albans in the south of the country, were, were, were doing our own version of Harmony. So we were quite unusual when we started, I think. I think that it was very much to our advantage that we had such a wide spectrum of musical influences when we started, and in fact, to this day. But it's also a little bit of a disadvantage as well because people like to categorise you. And our music can sometimes be quite difficult to categorise because we have such a wide spectrum of influences. And uh, I think especially in the 60s, it kind of confused the media a bit because they, they just didn't know what kind of music we played. And, and if they can't categorise you, then sometimes radio stations won't play you. So it was, it was a blessing and a disadvantage, I think, that we drew our inspiration from so many different kinds of music. But in the long term, I think it's helped us mm -hmm. because it means that if you get one of the tracks from Modesty and Oracle, for instance, it doesn't necessarily... It sounds a bit time but it doesn't sound necessarily sound as dated as some of the contemporary things that were around and it still has the ability 
to our huge delight to be able to relate to a young generation of people and it really does there, were, there was a girl that that was the, a granddaughter of one of the original people that saw us in the philippines when we were over there recently and she said and she was about 18 years old and she said i was i was dragged kicking and screaming to this concert she said i didn't want to come she said i'd never heard of you i never heard you but my grandmother was at your early concerts here she said, but you played a song tonight. It was called A Rose for Emily, and I found myself crying at the end of it. And that was just, she'd never heard wow. the record. It was just a live, and I thought, well, if we can still relate, if somehow this is getting across to, you know, a young generation, that's a huge bonus, really. Well, the, also, the music business has uh, gotten less bounded by categories. You know, the the world has become a smaller place, and we're really, all exposed, really, especially really, with the internet. Really has, yeah. So much different kinds of music are all melding together. You know, if I had to do what I used to do when I worked at the record store and categorize records now, uh, it would be impossible. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think I would just put everything A to Z and leave <laughs> yeah. it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like I do in my own library. It's like... Well, I mean, this thing about the world being a, um, a much smaller place now, and uh, as Colin said earlier, we almost always, in the original incarnation of Zombies, had a hit somewhere in the world, but we just didn't know. Mm -hmm. and we didn't yeah. even know that Time the Season was becoming a hit in the States until several months after it had started to very slowly catch fire. And in a way that records could in those days, gradually spread out and gradually and suddenly reached a critical point where it took off and then it was a huge hit. And nowadays, you know, you could have uh, a hit in outer Mongolia and know within two hours because mm -hmm. of the internet. In those days, you just didn't know for months sometimes. So it made a huge difference. I also had the, the pleasure of um, seeing the Otto Priminger film. Um, <laughs> you mean the one Lake, there where we starred with Laurence Olivier? You mean? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bunny Lake is missing. Uh, you guys recorded, had, there were three cuts that showed yes. up on that, that soundtrack. Um, the film was released in the U.S. in 19, October of 65. And the two cuts, uh, Remember You and Just Out of Reach, were, uh, came out as a single. In September of that year, did you guys write the music? Um, you didn't. Did you write it for the film? And well, we did write it for the film, but we wrote it for the film without seeing the film. They wanted three new songs written and recorded very quickly. I, I seem to remember they wanted them in about a two-week period, mm -hmm. um, and basically that was because the film company wanted part of the publishing, so they couldn't use any old songs they had to be mm -hmm. new songs mm -hmm. it's, it was so, it's just something as basic as that was that your first song it was my second song that uh, right. just out of reach i wrote mm -hmm. and it, it came at a time when actually rod didn't have any new songs and so it fell to chris and i to try and we, we just had some ideas and we just had to build those ideas up mm -hmm. very very quickly and yeah eventually there, there was a single mm -hmm. um it's a shame in a way i, I wished we'd had more time and uh, we could have at least had more choice of songs, and, and possibly they could have been stronger songs as well. Well, just out of reach is great. I mean, we still play that on stage sometimes. We do, mm. yes. Um, it's the second That's song. That's an encore sometimes. Yeah, it's the second song I wrote for the band, mm -hmm. and I, I really was at the very beginning of my writing career when I wrote that song. Mm -hmm. So it always makes me smile, because... I remember how desperate I was to try and write a song. <laughs> it's great. It's a great film. I mean, it, it really it is. is a nice yes. uh, psycho thriller, 
They yeah. don't make films like that now. No, not, it's not great. Like I see anyway. In black and white. And did you guys? So you must have did, you recorded the video also for that that showed up in the the bar. Yeah. The bar oh, yeah. Specifically, that took us that. about two days to shoot that, and of course it, it lasts about eight seconds. Can I tell yeah. you a funny little story about that? Yeah. Um, Otto Preminger. Uh, everybody working on the film was in total awe of him. He was not a nice person, particularly to the people he was working not with. Not to work with, anyway. Yeah. But, of course, we didn't care. We, we were never going to see him again. So, um, uh, well, he, he would reduce people to tears by being incredibly nasty to them. And uh, one on one occasion, we were doing a shot where he was... My face sort of fills the screen, you know, in, mm-hmm. in one bit. So we we were doing that, and he had two or three goes at it, and he started talking to me like he was talking to the, the other people, you know. <laughs> and, and I stood up and said, "Don't you ever talk to me like that again?" That, that again. And there was total silence on the set, and he went, and then he laughed and said, "Okay." You know. <laughs> he was a, he was a real tyrant, and uh-huh. he was reducing people to tears yeah. in in the crew. In the crew, yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah. their but, livelihood depended on him. Yeah, you know, I thought I don't care if I get up and walk out of here. Right, it doesn't yeah. bother me. Yeah, <laughs> well, good for you. So we're going to hear um, just another beat. Yeah, yeah we're going to hear that coming Excellent. up next. Excellent. Oh, and, this is um, a, this is a great day for me. I'm going <laughs> to hear one of my early compositions. Yeah. Okay, from the Otto Preminger film, Bunny Lake is Missing. That was just out of reach. And uh, we're here in uh, KZSC Studios in Santa Cruz. And we hope to see you there tonight at the Catalyst Club uh, for the Zombies in Bruce Sudano. So I wanted to ask, you kind of touched briefly on this after your contract was up with DECA and you had a little more experience under your belt and you approach CBS, you got signed with them. Was there a, a, a sense of freedom when you were writing Odyssey and Oracle for that time? Oh, I mean, uh, you guys wrote some of the some of the best material to, to date uh, for oh, that album. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, there was a huge sense of freedom. And the thing is that we'd been disappointed with the record production on several of our singles leading up to that point and we were getting very frustrated it wasn't sometimes we were making demos that were much closer to how we heard the structure of the song um so um my remembrance was that it was sort of in the air that because of the factors that colin mentioned that the band might not last too much longer so if that was the case chris and i were desperate to get our own ideas about how our songs should sound on onto record um and we went to CBS and they agreed to give us a thousand pounds, which even at that time was not a huge amount of money. And we followed the Beatles into Abbey Road. They were walking out, uh, having recorded Sergeant Pepper, virtually as we were walking in the door to start the recording of Odyssey and Oracle. And we really benefited from a lot of the technical advances that the Beatles had forced onto the engineers there because mm-hmm. they were the, this huge mix, Abbey Road, of being incredibly conventional, uh, wearing white coats and uh, all the technical staff wore white coats. And I mean, this went back to the 30s. Yeah. Um, but being cutting edge in terms of their ability and their knowledge. And so, they, you know, it was a great place to be. And... We were the first band, 
as far as I know, that were allowed to record in Abbey Road Studios at that time that weren't signed to mm. EMI Records because mm. it was the house studio for EMI. So it was a fantastic time. And for the first time, we had more than four tracks because the Beatles had forced... Having heard Pet Sounds, which was done on an eight-track, which seemed immensely liberating, um, they wanted an eight-track. And Abbey Road said, well, we haven't got any eight-tracks in this country. So... And they, and they thought, and they said, but what we might be able to do is put a sync tone and, and get two four tracks to actually sync together. And in that case, you'd have seven tracks and one track as a sync track. Um, so we jumped on all that technology, uh, which was fantastically liberating, because as we didn't have much money, we used to prepare and rehearse the songs very, very definitely before we went in. None of this writing in the studio, we just didn't have the money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we would go in and in a three-hour session, we would record a track, and then, because we had three more tracks than, than we were used to, uh, I'm, for instance, I might, like on Changes, um, uh, great Chris White song, Changes, um, I remember hearing um, a, a little line at the top, Dee -da 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 at the top. I said to Chris, look, I've got this line. He said, yeah, whiz in there. So whizzed in there, just put it on, it was done. And it was this sort of freeing feeling to be able to do that. We, we, we put down time of the season, and then I said to Hugh, I can hear this, you know, which is either side of the snare beat. Mm -hmm. And so I, I nipped in there. It took about ten minutes. That, that's it. You know, but it felt... We were like kids in a candy store. It was mm -hmm. great. It was incredibly liberating. And that, the cover, I wanted to talk about the cover of that album, the mm -hmm. iconic misspelling of Odyssey. Um, Terry Quirk uh, <laughs> yes. designed that. Um, and I've heard, you know, both sides of whether he it was an accidental or whether he did that on purpose. So have well, you, haven't you, Colin? Yes. <laughs> Rod told me a story for 40 years, maybe longer, about, about the misspelling. And then we were doing an interview like this, and he let the secret out of the bag. He was telling me a complete <laughs> fabrication, that it had been done on purpose as a kind of play on words. But mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is, Terry Quirk, who's a fine artist, shared a flat, an apartment, with Rod and Chris White... And he he drew, literally painted. You know, there were no computers, mm -hmm. so he painted um, the cover. It was an actual painting while we were away, and it was okayed, and it went to the printers, and it was only when it was too late they realised that he misspelled um, Odyssey. I looked at Chris and I said, when when we, when when the record company showed us the cover, we said, yes, fabulous, we'd love it. And then I said, Chris, he spelled Odyssey wrong. And, oh. and we, I said, well, what are we going to... And I said, well, that'll have to be changed. And they said, no chance, you know, that we, we paid for it, it's, it's, it's being manufactured. And I said, right, OK, well, it, it's got the word ode there, so we can make it, you know, a cross between um, a journey, which is an odyssey, um, of uh, sort of little stories or odes you know <laughs> so you made up the story. story and he told me that <laughs> <laughs> and as i said we were doing an interview like this quite recently three or four years ago and he owned up and i, I said to him rod you've been telling me that <laughs> for nearly 50 years uh -huh. oh, I, better, I better tell you before we die i better tell you some other secrets yes i think you had <laughs> incidentally terry quirk went to the same school as me <laughs> Uh, and uh -huh. I can't spell either, so <laughs> I blame it on the school. Uh <laughs>
Well, the the cover of Odyssey shows up in the cover of Still Got That Hunger. And I was wondering, that's why I asked you in the beginning, I was wondering, was there any discussion to spell it correctly the second time, saying, oh, now, let's see, I got it right the second time, or spell it the the way that it Double was down. originally intended and say no see i really meant to do it that way no it, it was a, it was almost like a combination i mean terry said to me that um there are several uh, there are lots of little bits of hidden meanings in the in the in the present cover um but one of them i won't tell you all the sec- little secrets because he said well let people work it out according to how they feel about things but one of the things was is a picture of him um uh some people think that that picture is the thinker. Well, it's not. It's actually mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember his Rodin. name. It's it's the guy on the one of the circles of hell in oh, yeah. Dante's Inferno. But anyway, it, it's him in torment mm-hmm. because he spelled it wrong and he's going. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm not really supposed to tell anybody that, uh, but uh, <laughs> but that's one of the, one of the little uh, allusions on the on the cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's hear a little bit of the, this album, uh, too, one of the newer songs. Uh, did you have anyone you'd want to highlight for us? Maybe one you might play tonight? or Well, we'll, we'll be playing Moving On for sure okay. tonight. It's the opening track to uh, Still Got the Hunger by the Zombies, uh, recorded 2015 and performed tonight at the yeah. Catalyst Club. We'll actually be doing probably about four or five new tracks tonight, won't we? Sure. Awesome. I'm moving on Like a ship sailing wind blown And uh, that was the first track off of The Zombies Still Got That Hunger Moving On was the name of that track and uh you guys are gonna play that tonight nice so we uh just have uh each have a question for you as individual artists after the zombies um broke up uh rod um argent's self-titled uh debut album um that included the uh, russ ballard's liar tune which became a top 10 billboard hit it was actually number seven for three dog night when they released it um they released it as a b-side to a single oh did they i didn't yeah. know that okay a year or so after you had released your your single um why do you think your the song failed to chart for argent and did three dog nights version help introduce listeners to argent at all i mean i i loved your version and i don't understand why it didn't it didn't uh, do the what, as successful as... Uh, it wasn't released as a single, no. Um, uh, but at the same time... Um, now, two-part answer to this question. Firstly, um, the first two Argent albums, um, Argent and Ring of Hands, are my two favourite Argent mm-hmm. albums. Um, I, I think they've got something really special about them. And, and they feel like a real um, sort of curve coming from the zombies to me. Uh, changing, but but really with their roots in what we were doing in the zombies, um, but we, they were done at a very new studio called Sound Techniques at the time. It was very new. It, we were the first artists to record there, and the sound at the time was really fairly small, and we felt that, which is why we then changed to Abbey Road um, 
to do um, Hold Your Head Up, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and the things that came after that. Um, but uh, recently, quite interestingly, um, all the Argent catalogue has been remastered. And with, with, with present uh, remastering techniques, they've, they've made it sound-wise, just purely technically sound-wise, compete uh, with the energy of everything else that's out there. Mm-hmm. And I think they sound they sound absolutely terrific now. Uh, I thought they sounded I thought the album sounded lovely before, but in a more muted way. But this is all the playing is exactly the same. All the energy of the playing is exactly the same. But technically, they've broadened and just beefed up the sound a little bit, mm-hmm. um, which is what it should have been in the first place. Um, so I think maybe that was one reason why the early things weren't quite as impactful as you know in, in, in a commercial sense. Uh, even though I love the album dearly and did at the time um uh but uh I, I can't remember the second part of your question but that but 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 i think that that's the the main thing in, in my mind anyway well, one yeah. thing i was going to say is that this incarnation of the zombies did at one time play liar oh, you know, did, i think we? it's yeah. a great song and so i'm just going to get a little plug in to rod right now and say it would be nice if we had another go at that yeah, song because it, it's again. a great song yeah. and of course it's always good to have in your armory songs that the audience are familiar with and, mm. and we've got a story mm-hmm. we can say uh, rod and jim rodford were both founder members of argent mm-hmm. and and they recorded liar first mm-hmm. and so i think that gives us the right to play it in our <laughs> yeah, in our yeah. show I'd love to hear it. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess the second part of that question was, did Three Dog Nights, Dog Nights oh. version uh, bring audiences to Argent, and did you guys get any exposure from well, from their release? I mean, not, at the, like not at the time, helped? because it wasn't, well, it wasn't a hit in the UK, mm. the Three mm-hmm. Dog Nights version. Yeah, it was a hit in the US. Um, but yeah. it was in the US, mm-hmm. and we used, when we first came over as Argent, we used to do it on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and people obviously did know it, and um, and and that was good. Yeah, it helped us. You know, we had some very successful concerts um, with Argent in the in the US. We had some good times. Mm-hmm. Colin, uh, I know some of the folks like me who found your solo stuff and really love it are wondering if it's going to get that same sort of reintroduction and remastering treatment. Um, I- I'm not sure what plans there are for it at the moment. Uh-huh. I think CBS or Sony are often quite uh, active with the first three albums I did. Yeah. Um, the other albums have been sort of slightly neglected, uh, um, although there was just a reissue quite recently of a couple of my albums I- in the UK. Um, I don't know if there's any plans to remaster any, any of the other stuff, but, it, I mean, for me, sometimes it's a little frustrating or even embarrassing that because... I have had quite a few hits as a solo artist, but not in America. And so if ever I start talking about what I've done as a solo artist in America, I can see people's eyes glazing over because they have no idea what I'm talking about. And um, I mean, Say You Don't Mind was a huge European yes, hit. Yes, it's, it's a song written by Denny Lane. It was a, a really, really big hit. I mean, there have been several. And sometimes we play them in this incarnation of the band. We play a song written by Russ Ballard called I Don't Believe in Miracles, which was a big hit in the UK. And, um, and you know, we'll be playing that tonight. But generally, we try and keep our separate careers separate so that the emphasis on what we play is always zombie material. We will be doing Hold Your Head Up, but then that has a, um, a huge connection 
with um, Argent, with the Zombies, um, because Chris Wyatt wrote the majority of that song, the original bass player of the Zombies actually wrote the... Most people think I wrote it, but I didn't. It was mainly written by Chris. And he wrote it when he heard the early Argent play a version of Time of the Season. We went into a, a riff when we were improvising it we'd never played before. Chris loved it, and he wrote a song around it, and that became Hold Your Head Up. So it's got a real There's zombies a connection. connection. Okay. Mm. So we do that, and that goes down a, a storm, you know. Okay. Well, my, my original question, I guess, about Tim Harden and uh, Misty Roses, uh, maybe Fantastic track. doesn't it's, doesn't apply well, it's, it's a really, really beautiful song. Yeah. And a friend of mine, an American friend of mine, actually, uh, from Chicago, uh, sent me the Tim Harden album that Misty Roses was on, and I couldn't believe it hadn't been covered by anyone else. It just really stuck out to me. And at the time, Rod and Chris White were producing me, and we actually recorded that song, our version, in two halves. So we played it with a sort of a, a jazz guitar, the first half, and then we'd been introduced to a wonderful arranger called, called Chris Gunning, who put in a sensational uh, string arrangement in the middle, sort of a three-minute string arrangement, and then I come in at the end of but the song. But that's because we'd asked him, originally, Chris and I had the idea at the beginning of the album, I wanted the whole album to be like that, and, and I had a conversation with Chris and said, can you make it like a Bartok string quartet? Um, and and uh, we started with the idea of the whole album having that sort of um, very abstruse quality, if you like, you know, because it was just a, a wonderful, you know, no one, certainly no one had ever done it. And he did. Um, he thought, he, he wasn't sure about the idea, but he did it. And he, he's a great classical musician. And, uh, and we absolutely adored the result. But somehow, uh, towards the end of us producing the album, it got more... I don't mean commonplace in the, in the, in the way that I didn't think it was good, but it, but it got less singular, you know. It, it sort of strayed into more normal territory. I would have loved it if the whole album had been done. Yeah, with, in, in that retrospect, way. I think it would have been stronger. And in fact, the hit sing, the big hit single from that album is me, me singing with a 21-piece string orchestra. Say that mind. You know, there's no rhythm section, it's just strings. It was so unusual, I never dreamt it would ever get any airplay. I don't probably couldn't get airplay now, but it, but it did then. And that song was the song that we used to finish the set with in the original Zombies Before We Broke Up, in a rock and roll version, okay. because it's Denny Lane's song that we loved, and we often used to finish the set with that, our rock and roll version of that song. And that is why we thought it was a great idea to throw it into a completely different arena, you know. Mm -hmm. oh, great. Well, um, I've got a recording from the old grey whistle test uh, uh, of, oh, right. of Say You Don't Mind that we'll play, but uh, could you just invite the audience to your show tonight and we'll say goodbye? Okay, well, you know, do come down and see the zombies tonight because we're playing at... The Catalyst Club on Pacific Avenue in Santa Cruz. And if anyone hasn't seen us before, I, I'm... I, you know, you might say, I would say this, but the band is really fantastic. There's just as much energy on stage as there was when we were 18 years old. And it's, um, we love to play. The band, the whole band love to play. And we both think it's the best band we've ever played with. So do come and check us out. Good. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Well, it's been a real pleasure much. talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to play another song now, written a long time ago again, this time by Denny Lane. And it's a song called Say You Don't Mind.
Stupid fish, I drank the pool 